Our scripture reading today is from Luke 23, verses 32 through 43. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by, watching. But the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not... Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Well, um... Some of you may know this, some of you may not. Um, uh, some years ago, I used to work across the street at Vanderbilt and had a couple of these bonehead moments where um, I thought I could uh, drive my car with the lowest amount of gas in the tank as possible and uh, found myself, this, there was kind of a string of these, as I remember now, I'm sure I'll hear more about that later, um, but I, that, uh, I, was, I, knew, I was on empty, I thought, oh, I'm, I'm literally across the street, my office is right there, I can drive right after work today, get gas on the way home. I thought I was just kind of playing with, you know, fate there, let's see what happens. So I remember getting out to my car, I start to try and turn this thing on, and it's just, it's like, no, you are not going anywhere. And I thought, oh, what do you do at that moment? So, uh, yes, I, I had a car with no gas sitting there, and uh, yes, I'm a full-grown adult. Uh, so I am uh, in the parking lot with a car that is basically a giant paperweight at this moment, and um, I, I, I'm kind of thinking, what do I do now? I don't really have a gas can and thankfully, I had somewhat of a, a rapport, at least, you know, with the Vanderbilt Police Department. Um, this patrol car pulls up, and a typical Vandy kind of campus cops, uh, not so nice. They see me standing there. I kind of like, hey, can, can you help me out? And, uh, you know, they're looking at me like, yeah, you are a full-grown adult, and you just did that. Um, and uh, I asked them for their help, and uh, those of you that... Uh, may have, hopefully, you haven't, but may have encountered the Vanderbilt police at some point in this room. Um, I uh, was ushered into, they said, hey, hop in the back. And uh, so I get into the back of this car. And I don't know if you've ever been in the back of a police car. That's up to you. We can talk about that later. Um, but I get into the back, and it has these kind of carved out plastic seats, you know, obviously for easy cleanup and such, and there's the plastic, Officer Liz is in the back, maybe she can show you her car, and uh, I'm in the back of this thing, and I realize once I get in, I can't get out, there's no way for me to like hop out, they have to let me out, so first, I get in the car, and they're driving me a little bit through campus, and uh, I don't have a gas can, so they're so kind, they say, we'll, we'll drive you to the station, we'll get you a gas can, well, they take, I, I feel like, in my opinion, the long way through campus, 
around, and there I am in the back of this car, looking left and right, seeing people that probably know me, and uh, thinking, okay, I'm on my way to the station. So I get out at the station. Not only do I get, I get a gas can, then they're not. They're like, oh, we'll drive you to the gas, you know, the gas station. So I get in the car, I drive to the gas station in the back holding this can. I'm looking around. People are still seeing me. I go to the gas, you know, I fill up the tank. They take me back to my car. So kind. But it it was one of the most uh, uh, glaring ways that I felt public, kind of like, I'm innocent, but I'm really guilty in people's eyes. If there's anything that's a symbol of guilt, people didn't care. All they did was they say, Stacy Croft is in the back of a cop car, guilty. What do we tweet out about this? You know, like, what do we say? Because all, all it does is it's a symbol. It's, it's a picture of guilt. Even if I am innocent, I know I'm just getting my gas tank full. That's what's seen. You know, we just read a passage that really highlights the key symbol of Christianity. There's one hanging right above me. And if you look at that and you think about that, why do we have that as a key symbol? It is, it is a public display of shame. For many of us, as, as we read this passage and we see things like this, we may be reminded of, of okay, it's a place of death. We, we see it as a symbol to remind us of Jesus taking on death. But you know what, though? In this key passage, in that key time, it was not a symbol of redemption. It was a symbol of execution. It was a symbol of public humiliation. And they didn't care whether you said, I'm innocent or not. You are associated with a cross, you're guilty. Anytime, if you think about when Jesus in his Gospels, the, the Gospels are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, if you're here and you're unfamiliar with the Gospels there, they're historical accounts of Jesus ministry and life, and and he brings up the cross several times, and if you see the reaction to the cross when he brings it up, you realize this is not, this is like being in the back of a cop car. They're like, why in the world would you talk about something like that? They think Jesus is crazy, that he would actually associate that thing with his ministry. Makes no sense at all. And if you really think about what we're doing this morning, associating the cross with following somebody for our redemption, it should kind of blow your categories a little bit. It is kind of a strange thing. Because to the Gospels, the cross is a crisis. It's not just a heralded thing. It's a crisis of sorts. It creates confusion in his followers. It creates celebration in those mocking and trying to get rid of him. A cross is a deep crisis, even for Jesus. Because right before this, he, he, we find Jesus face to face with a prayer to his heavenly Father saying, God, is there any other way? Not my will, but thy will. I will go. But not without him in anguish. Even, it says, sweating drops of blood because of the anguish of anticipation of this horrible, horrible thing. We need to kind of focus on that for a moment. We need to focus on the fact that the the cross is a crisis. Because if we really get close to it, if we really do in the way that the the Gospels illuminate it and draw it out, if we really embrace it the way that, that we're supposed to, as the Gospels do, it will force more to the surface than we probably really want. 
It can make us deeply uncomfortable, but it can also create the deepest amount of peace. So with this passage this morning, I really would love for us to look at the perspectives given of the cross in this passage, so many. I joked with Hannah that if she came up here and did air quotes, she'd be doing this the whole time because there's just these quote after quote after quote of what do people really think of Jesus and this cross? And it gives us the perspective of that. If you read this, it says, verse 32, chapter 23, two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. So we, we get not only Jesus' account of this, we get two others' account, their perspectives of the cross. And when they came to that place that is called the skull, there they crucified him, that is Jesus, and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And so with this, there's, there's these two views, so to speak, of, of what the cross is and, and Jesus' place in it. If you look at this first guy in verse 35, it says, the people stood by watching the rulers scoff. You say, he saved others, let him save himself. There's this movement down. The soldiers mocked him as well. But then verse 39, one of the criminals who was hanged railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. To, to this perspective, the cross was denigration. It was shame. The, the place called the skull was actually a place that was kind of described as what it was. It was a rounded hill. It looked like the top of a skull, very shaped, rounded, and because death was associated with it, it was called the skull. But if you see in these passages, it wasn't just a place outside the city that was not like, let's kind of put it in a corner so nobody sees it. It was actually a very highly trafficked area. So you could easily and most likely pass by it. The Romans intentionally put this stay of execution, this place right there, so that as people came to the city, it would become a deterrent. That's even one reason Jesus had the sign above him, the king of the Jews, as if to say, as you walk in the city and multiple, maybe with other criminals, those who are insurrectionists, those who are against the Roman government who are, who are hung up, because the Romans wouldn't even crucify their own, own Roman citizens. Usually these were lowly criminals. They were hung up with a sign over them. So when you walked by, you looked at that sign and you said, I am A, glad that's not me, but hope it will never be. The cross was intense. It created an intensity. And what did it do in this first criminal? It exposed his own guilt. He was running from the cross. This, this criminal in himself was one who was probably looking at it to say, save yourself and us. Come on, do something about this. The cross for him was something that Jesus was like, if you really are this person, get me off this thing. I don't know if you're the Messiah, but I don't want this thing. It was exactly what it was meant to be, a public place of shame for for him. And if we really get close to the cross, it can do that to us. Because if we really think what we're, we're proclaiming, we're proclaiming that a man thousands of years ago took on our sin. And when we actually try and grapple with the reality that he takes on those things in confession, in reality, in, in life, then we have to be exposed to the fact that we have something in us that needs to be dealt with. But how do we deal with it? See, the cross forces you to say, there was a moment in history and time and space when, when this person went to take on this penalty. It means I have something of shame and guilt that needs to be addressed. 
This first criminal knew that, that the cross itself is a crisis because it means his guilt is real. It is real and it is punishable. And for many of us that maybe even call ourselves Christians, we live not with someone else paying, but continually seeing the cross as our payment. That maybe we use the idea and the thought that, yes, the cross, we herald it as a symbol because Jesus took it up, but for most of us in this room, we live in a complete cycle of guilt and shame. I know I do. Thinking, okay, yes, Jesus took that cross, but that was thousands of years ago. How do I take up my cross and I'm supposed to do this? And it reminds me more of my sin rather than grace, doesn't it you? There's the saying that many have maybe said before, maybe you've heard it, maybe others have said it. Every time you take a look at your sin, take 10 looks at the cross, but maybe for many of you, taking a look at your sin and looking at the cross makes you more sorrowful, more shameful of what you deserve. You live in that place of deserving. Maybe it is something that brings that up to you. I know, look, it's a public display. It is, it is something that calls us to see our sin as reality. But do we hang there? The power of that shame and guilt is huge and palpable. 2020 or 60 Minutes, I can't remember which one did this some years ago, did a study on the power of shame and guilt. And the way they did this was they called a number of individuals who happened to be overweight to actually learn how to lose weight. But they said, look, we're going to take pictures of you in bathing suits, and we're going to actually, if you don't lose weight in the next several months, we're going to post them on the Internet. And I think, you know, say there were 10 individuals, all but one was unable to lose the weight by that time because the fear of the public shame. I mean, if if there's a public road in our narrative today, That's the Golgotha, the skull, the place by which we pass by. Isn't it social media and the internet? The comments that we can leave. or You can can comment on anything. Anything. And you can receive them. It is the highway by which we can shame and destroy one another. And so they utilize that to see how powerful is that road of shame to see what it's like in our lives. See, for many of us, we live in that place. Shame is the motivator. Shame is the way we can get things done. Maybe shame is the way you're successful because it's the tape that plays in your mind to say, you will never add up, so you need to do this. You need to have this done. But the cross, for many of us, may be that. It was left in that way. For the religious leaders, it was, you deserve this, Jesus. I mean, if you see the progression of mocking here, Luke does this on purpose. Notice, The mocking begins this way. It says, And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him. That is religious leaders. He saved others. Let him save himself if he's God, the chosen one. He deserves this. He put it on himself. That's that's where he belongs. The Romans come next. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering sour wine. Say, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. And then finally the criminal. It's a progression of, in phases of all of those who are mocking Jesus. Why? Because that symbol is a symbol of mocking. And it produces a crisis in us. It should. If it hasn't, you need to see what the cross really means. Maybe it does produce the shame, but maybe, like the Romans, it was a deterrent in your life. Maybe the cross for you is 
something that reminds you that you need to be good. Maybe you're one of those individuals. Imagine, imagine if we had something like this. And we have the internet, we have that. That can get bloody and brutal in terms of emotional and, and, and social status. But imagine even the physical wrapped up into that as well. Passing by a place of execution that was a very high-trafficked area, somewhat like a Broadway, where the city of Nashville decided, we're going to put up a deterrent to any wrongdoers to our country, to our government. We're going to put people on display that have wronged this city. How awful. That's what it would be like. But here's what the point was, the deterrent to say, hey, you don't want to be like them. You need to be better. You need to be good. And maybe the cross is that for you. Maybe instead of living in shame, you also bounce between and you say, the cross is a deterrent for me to try and just do better. I need to do better. I need to feel better. I need to do good. Is that what the cross is? Is the cross a crisis for you to, to live up to what you just don't live to? And it's amazing how many times, three times in this passage, that everybody in this passage, what do they say to Jesus? Save yourself. Save yourself. If you're really this good, save yourself. Isn't that what we're trying to do? Doesn't the cross create a crisis in us to say, Jesus, if I can't really believe that you can save me from these things, I will believe that it's a symbol that I can save myself. That I can be good enough to bring myself out from underneath this. That I can, I can rescue me. I can do it. And every time we hear the mocking, right? Imagine, you're one of those criminals. You're hearing, he's hearing the mocking over and over. And he's looking, this criminal's looking to Jesus and he's saying, you're innocent, whatever. If you really are, then save all of us. Do what you're supposed to do. Is that where the cross has brought you at this moment? Because doesn't it feel utterly alone? That's what this man viewed the first cross as. Panic unto death. The cross brought panic. Because ultimately it forced him to see death. Time Magazine put out the thought of how to become less afraid of death. Listen to what they said. Death is typically on the fringes of our awareness, says a particular professor of psychology. When reminded of their mortality, people cling to their worldviews and more react warmly to people and ideas that comfort them. But he found that those who have an identity exploration, or that is an identity crisis, those who do not have an attachment to the worldview or something that really holds them, then they lose their commitment. They find themselves wandering. This is Time Magazine talking about the fact that if we don't have something, something out there that we know holds us from, from even keeps us, that remembers us in the face of death, then we all find panic. We live in a state of panic, and sometimes we do, regardless, even if we know that the cross is there, that death is being dealt with in that moment. Is it for you? The cross is a crisis. And here's what's interesting. Jesus has been doing all this. There are two criminals. The other one, though, says this in verse 40. 
But the other rebuked him. That means this criminal rebukes his friend, saying, do you not fear God since you're under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly for are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing, nothing wrong. In many accounts of the Gospels, this guy was actually with the other criminal mocking. This, This is a change of voice for him. He was a part of the mocking arena of Jesus, but somewhere along the line, watching Christ in these last hours, something deeply impacted him. The cross revealed something to him. It revealed something about himself. It revealed what he really deserved, but he didn't stop there. Different than the other criminal who may think, I deserve this, or maybe I should have done better, I shouldn't have gotten caught. He doesn't hang there with the idea that he just deserves it. He also begins to hold that this man next to him is somehow innocent. He hears words that that no person on a cross would ever say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He hears him say things in kindness, not only to him, but, but to all those who are mocking and destroying and trying to kill him there. And I don't know about you, but if I'm in that position of being publicly shamed or humiliated, my first foot forward is never forgiveness. I come out swinging. This isn't me. Riding around in the back of that car. Oh, no, no, I was just getting gas. You know, how to, oh, yeah, they were just driving me around. They're trying to help me out. But what does Jesus do? He opens not his mouth. Would this criminal notice that Jesus in all of the attacks, all of the the ways that he spit on, he's mocked, he has a crown of thorns. Unlike these other two, he gets a crown of thorns jammed down onto his head and yet says nothing. Would that be what transforms this man? What would he see? He would see his innocence. And he would hold both his guilt and see Jesus' innocence and begin to say, there's something different here. There's a way to have this lifted off. In fact, the word forgiveness, when Jesus says, Father, forgive them, the deep meaning of that word, both Hebraically and in Greek, is to lift off. If you're in that moment of crucifixion, one of the things that happens to you is asphyxiation. You lose your breath. You cannot breathe. Because all of your weight is held upon this nail, and they even sometimes put a bar underneath so that they could sit on it, but they still would have their arms up and begin to lose their breath. Can you imagine them being lifted off? And Jesus, instead of saying, Father, lift me up, bring me up, he's saying, lift off this guilt off of them. And this criminal, being crucified next to him, would identify that this bloodied, crown of thorns, Jewish man who says he's the king of the Jews and hardly knows anything about him begins to say, he has a relationship with God that I need. I long for. I need this guilt that I know that I deserve lifted off. And isn't that where we live? We need God to lift, to unburden us 
To not remain in shame and guilt, but to be innocent means that God lifts it off and puts it onto another. One of my greatest loves and illustrations of this is from the uh, Victor Hugo's Les Miserables. This is a, if you haven't seen the, the most current movie, that's a, a wonderful way to see it. If you've read the book, that's fantastic. I think even after I've seen this, I've seen the, the musical, I've, I've, I've watched the movies, I've seen, it, it just still brings me to tears with, when the criminal, Jean Valjean, who is, is at the beginning finding his way, he receives the kindness of a, uh, a priest to bring him in off the street. And Valjean, under temptation, begins to steal his silver and flees the scene, only to be brought back by the police, brought right in front of the priest, where the priest, instead of saying, yes, he stole my silver, yes, he's guilty, says, no, I let him borrow it. Thanks for bringing it back. And he's absolved. Valjean's transformed by this absolutely transformed by this mercy. Listen to his words that he sings after the priest says, I have bought your soul for God. He says, I feel my shame inside me like a knife. He told me that I have a soul, that he is the the priest. He told me I have a soul. How does he know? What spirit comes to move my life? Is there another way to go? I am reaching, but I fall. And the night is closing in as I stare into the void, to the whirlpool of my sin. I'll escape now from that world, from the world of Jean Valjean. Jean Valjean is nothing now. Another story must begin. And at that moment, that's the beginning of the entire story of Les Mis, not the end. You begin to see how mercy has transformed this man so much, the way he cares for those in his city. He becomes the mayor of the town. He begins to care for those who are under prostitution, those who are are disenfranchised, those who are hurt and lame and broken and sore, and he begins to be transformed. He loves them because he has been so loved and recognizes the mercy that has been laid on him in the whirlpool of his own sin. That is what it means to be lifted off because the cross is that. The cross is not just some sort of symbol. It's a crisis of recognizing that we had someone take the ultimate weight onto himself. Ultimate weight off of us onto him. The forgiveness, the unburdening, lifting off and placing onto him. The cross is a contradiction. It is a sign and symbol of a contradiction in us. Listen to what one theologian said. A living symbol of the cross is who we are to be. He or she is a person who believes the unbelievable, bears the unbearable, forgives the unforgivable, loves the unlovable, is perfectly happy not to be perfect, is willing to give up his or hers Her will becomes weak to be strong and finds love only to give it away. That is the cross. That's the crisis of it. The crisis is that you you meet it and you know that because it exists, 
every single sin you were able to confess this morning or you are not, and every one you're unwilling to confess, every corner of your heart that you are unwilling to let someone see in, the light of all the shame, the places you want to remain in your shame because you think you can deal with it better than anybody else, is dealt with by another. And that is what this man sees. And in that, he says something that is so profound. Jesus, verse 42, remember me when you come into your kingdom. How in the world does a criminal who is hanging for the penalties he knows look next to him to someone who's hanging just as he who is bloodied, who has torn up his back, Blood running down his face because all in the wounds of ways that he may not even even received. And he, he is hanging there and says, that man is a king. Remember me when you enter into your kingdom. How could that be? Because the language of remembering is the key. Isn't that it when we face death? Because the cross ultimately reminds us of death. When we are face to face with death, isn't that what we are afraid of the most? Is being kept. Death says we're alone. Death says you'll be isolated. As Megan prayed so beautifully, even the, the, the isolation, you feel hell itself when you live in that pain and isolation. That is hell. That death is what points us in that direction. And this man says, remember me. Did you know that this is actually what people would have written on their gravestones in that day? They would have, remember me. Because to appeal to the divine memory, to appeal to the one whose memory cannot be shaken, does not forget you, is the only way we can come into that paradise. Look, you're about to come to a table where we talk about memory. We talk about remembrance. We talk about one who, actually, we come to this table to remember because we forget. You know why we come to this table every week is because we forget. Our memory is so short. And yet, you know the differences and that Jesus says to him, today you will be with me in paradise. You understand that there's not just two perspectives of the cross here, there's three. There's one who was running from the cross. There's one who knew he deserved the cross, but there's one who went to the cross willingly. And that's the one in whom we come to this table through. This table is set by the one who didn't say, I'm going to run from the cross, or I don't deserve this. He knew his innocence, and yet he went to it willingly. You get to taste the memory of God for you. You get to taste his tangible reminder that you never, ever leave his memory. You get to taste the fact that this criminal is the same one that you and I worship with now and will forevermore. I want to appeal something to you if you're in this room and you've never really said, I'm going to follow Christ. Maybe you view the cross as a good thing. Maybe this whole thing is something good. It's a deterrent. It keeps me moral. That doesn't give you innocence. Maybe you live in a pattern of shame, a cycle you cannot break. There is no way you can break that. 
without Jesus taking up both and giving you his innocence. This is appeal. This is an appeal that it's not a stair-step process to come to Jesus. This criminal is in heaven right now. The moment on the cross, he wasn't, he wasn't baptized there. He didn't have to go through some class. He didn't do all those things. He didn't have to do all the things. We celebrate those things and we do those because we grow in Jesus. But this is showing you there's none of those things that give you access to heaven other than the relationship to Jesus Christ. Come to him. And if you are not in him, I'd encourage you to watch this table and think about the one who gives himself for this, for us to be reminded of God's love.